Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. The new legislative session starts Feb 9th, but it's a short session with elections in November. So what will and won't get done as legislators try to not rock the boat? We talk to State Senator Kathy Austin and State Representative Greg Howard for their views. Plus we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. State government starts their new legislative session on February 9th, and this year it's a short session of only 12 weeks with elections for everyone in November. So what bills will and won't get passed during this time as legislators possibly decide not to rock the boat too much on controversial measures that could affect their chances of re-election? Plus, continued debate on the controversial police accountability bill and the upcoming sale of marijuana towards the end of the year. And of course, the big race for governor. Will Lamont get a second term or not? I caught up with Democratic State Senator Kathy Austin and Republican State Representative Greg Howard to find out their thoughts and views. To you both, thanks for joining us on Connecticut East this week. New legislative session starts the 9th of February. Kathy, I want to turn to you first. Everyone's up for election this year, so not only a short session, but you're also having to deal with re-election campaigns. That's true. That is set by statute. And the general assembly, the whole general assembly is up for election this year. The governor and all the constitutionals are up this year. They have four year terms. And so they're all up this year. So, Greg, it must feel like you've only literally just got elected and now you're having to go through the process all again. Yeah, it does. I was saying that with some of my friends recently. I were talking about, you know, this fall and they said, man, you got to run again already. I said, it does seem like that. You know, it does. You know, Time goes by fast, as we all know. But uh, I look forward to it. You know, it's my first re-election campaign. And I, I feel like as a uh, first-term incumbent, that it's an opportunity for the people that I've represented to give me a performance review. You know, we think you did a good job. We think you could be better here. We don't think you did a good job. And, of course, I, as you probably know, will be uh, running in a slightly different aligned district this time than last time with the with the redistricting. The other thing as well is it's a short legislative session. And, you know, COVID's already caused you guys lots of problems because you had to do hybrids and, and there was a lot of work to be done and everything manages to, to get done. How do you feel about the fact that now you've got a shorter session? There's probably just as much work to do as well, Kathy. So this is the shortest session that we could possibly have. It's exactly 12 weeks long. It will start on the 9th of February and end on the 4th of May. And relative to the hybrid meetings that we have had, for the public hearings, I have found that the Zoom meetings have worked out very well for constituents. I've had far more constituents be able to participate in the public hearings without having to drive up. They were given time slots, so they didn't have to schedule a full day up at the General Assembly. And having been there for five terms now, I often found that people drove up. And because many of our hearings go to 11, 12 at night or one o'clock in the morning, found that uh, people had to leave after spending eight or nine hours because they had to get back home. 
So I'm happy for the public hearings to be hybrid. I would like to see us do committee meetings. And of course, we've always had to do Senate and House sessions in person. And I'd like to involve getting people back into the building. That these have worked out, but I'd like to get people back into the building. And Greg, what about you? Because I mean, it was your first two years. And of course, it's it's been not a normal two years. I mean, what are your thoughts going forward as well about, you know, the amount of work that has to be done and, and how much will actually get done? I think, you know, Kathy sort of nailed it, you know, it's 12 weeks and we're going to try to cram an entire legislative session to that. So anticipate being busy. I anticipate that in, in some of our leadership meetings, certainly with, with Senator Austin on, on public safety, we'll be have some, some discussion about the bills that we can actually bring forward and have the time to do appropriately. And, and I think that every committee is going to have that and we'll have that as a legislature. You know, and as far as COVID, I, I, I think that the, you know, again, not a great basis for comparison for me, but I think the Senator brings up a good point about convenience for the constituents to be able to testify. I have always been in favor of in-person communication. I think it's the most effective. I found as a, as a legislator, when I get emails from folks who are very upset, rather than you know respond by emails, oftentimes I'll offer can we have coffee and, and we can get some things ironed out and face to face. So, and, and it's sort of the other thing too, Brian, about that is the issue with, with hybrid or virtual public hearing is it makes it extremely easy for people who aren't constituents to come and testify from all around the world and, and drag that public hearing out for the constituents. And certainly there's value to that sometimes. So when, when the, you know, the former uh, district attorney from Colorado is, is testifying on the marijuana bill, well, he's got relative expertise that, you know, I can appreciate that. So uh, we, we had to find a balance and I look forward to working with my colleagues to do that. And let's touch upon a few of these new bills that uh, have come into or, you know, more parts of them are coming into law as of the beginning of 2022. One that uh, particularly you're interested in, Greg, obviously being a current serving police officer here in the state, the Police Accountability Bill, which has been very controversial ever since it was put forward. Still a lot of work on that. Yes, I think there's there's a few key areas that still need to be worked out on that as far as I'm concerned and as far as I, I believe police officers across the state are concerned. A lot of talk is about qualified immunity, and I think that that is a thing that, that police officers need to have explained to them. and They need to have a, a fair understanding and realize, uh, or, or at least a feeling, that, that the job that they do and they do it appropriately, they're going to be protected. I think that's a big one. Last year, we got the consent search of people back in because it's a necessary tool in law enforcement. I looked forward to trying to get the consent search of vehicles. We did get that out of committee with bipartisan support, but unfortunately, you know, it was amended up in the Senate and, and taken out. So I look forward to trying to get that back. There's a few other aspects of the police accountability. One is use of force. In 2019, California approached of police accountability and transparency in, in the realm of use of force. And I thought did a really, really good job. Now, let's keep in mind, Brian, I'm a Republican saying I thought California did a really good job on that bill because it codified some previous case law. And essentially, in my opinion, the way that police work should have been being done all along, but it allowed police work to be done. And I think that that's a balance that, that Connecticut should take a hard look at and say that, you know, when, when you get down to the substance of it, it's not a whole lot different than what we, they try to do in Connecticut. It's just worded in a way that's more in line with, you know, decades of training that police officers have gotten. So those, and then there's a few in, in public safety with mental health protections for officers, you know, removing the CALEA our requirement, which is, you know, largely viewed as a backdoor defunding and, um, you know, certain protections under one of our statutes where if a uh, officer is dismissed for malfeasance from one department and he feels that that was politically motivated or something beyond, you know, his credibility as an officer, he can appeal that to post for certification. So those are a few things out of 77 pages, you know, in my opinion, we're down to a few sections that really need to be addressed. And other than that, I think we can move forward. 
And Kathy, I just want to turn to another topic which came law last year. And, and again, Greg will also have an opinion on this as well. And that's uh, marijuana, the legalization of adult recreational use of marijuana. And of course, we should be seeing before the end of 2022, the actual sale of that here in Connecticut. Thoughts on that? That particular bill, some 370 pages uh, long, will start to take effect in pieces. And in Connecticut and in my district, two of the towns that I represent are interested in moving forward with both the distribution and sales of marijuana. They're working on that as an economic driver, and they're working on it in conjunction with the local police chiefs to ensure public safety. So I see this as something that the communities wanted, that constituents wanted, and we just have to be mindful of both the public safety and the addiction components of it. And we've addressed both of those in the bill. Of course, there is supposed to be this social equity aspect to it with regards to people who live in areas impacted by drugs in the past being able to apply for, you know, licenses, etc. if they want to be a retailer. How well is that going? Because that seems to have garnered a little bit of controversy. And also the cost of these licenses seem to be exorbitant. I think the costs are too high. Relative to the social equity piece, that's how Norwich is addressing this issue because they qualify as a community that has been negatively impacted. So they're looking at this as a win for them. They are addressing this in a methodical fashion. They feel that this has no need for any changes right now. And Greg, what are your thoughts, obviously, on the bill, not only from a legislative point of view, but again, from, you know, a police point of view as well, because I know that the police were quite vocal on this aspect. So I'm starting to get, you know, before I get to that part of it, you know, I'm starting to get a little bit of discussion and questions about where the, the revenue is going to go. So that's something that people are paying some attention to. I think the senator is right. I think that legalization of cannabis is something that, you know, society wants. I'll tell you, and I've said a million times that the impact on society that cannabis has, in my opinion, is less than that of alcohol, you know, from a law enforcement standpoint. And what I mean by that, Brian, is in 20 years of policing, uh, of all the the folks I've arrested relevant to marijuana is, you know, for, for possession, basically, you know, you don't have people going out causing disturbances and whatnot, but there's the issue of driving. You know, I'm starting to read more and more studies about this where, you know, how driving uh, or being on the influence of cannabis impairs one's ability to drive. And that's where the center and I sort of disagree. You know, she, she feels that the, the legislation, you address public safety. And, and I don't think it did. Uh, I think that you know, when, when you have legislation that says, well, it's illegal to to smoke marijuana while driving because it's an, you know, an intoxicant and it impairs your ability. But if a police officer sees you doing it, he can't pull you over. That's not the best interest of public safety. Uh, today in Connecticut, if you're over 21 and you deliver alcohol to a minor, that's a felony. With marijuana, we've made it a misdemeanor. So we've made it a lesser offense to deliver the marijuana to children. So, so those are places where I think the bill failed, you know, in all, all the time that I've done with kids and in public safety, I couldn't bring myself to, while I don't necessarily oppose legalization, legalizing it in a way that minimizes the effect, the, the impact to adults who, who deliver to children and, and people who are driving around smoking. I, I couldn't get past that. So I couldn't support that bill. Brian, if I could just comment a little bit on that. Before we ever dealt with the marijuana bill for the last four or five years, I put in a bill to increase the number of drug recognition enforcement officers, a DRE, to increase the numbers that we had in, in the state of Connecticut for this eventuality and put in the money in the 
budget for us to increase the number of drug recognition enforcement officers. I got this because one of my constituents was training police officers in this methodology and had gone out to Colorado, had been somebody who was well-versed in this mechanism and will continue to push for uh, training, not only for DREs in the, in the force of the state police, but also in local police departments. So they have the capacity for people to test people that get stopped relative to this. Like everything, and I think we can all agree, these bills, they're not perfect pieces of legislation. And as we go forward with all of this, you know, there, there will be various parties who will be looking to tweak all of that. I want to quickly move on to problem gambling, which has sort of raised its head fairly recently. And I know, Kathy, you will be able to talk about this. And, and Greg, you'll also have a comment on this. Of course, we saw the legalization of online gambling and online betting in October of last year. On this podcast, we actually spoke to the Connecticut Council on Problem Gambling, who have said already within the months of it being legalized in the state, they're seeing a quadrupling of calls to their helpline. Concerns from both of you? One, when they said quadrupling, we still don't know the numbers because they didn't have the actual numbers. As a matter of fact, I sent them a request for some information relative to what they talked about. And they also said that they were getting a lot of calls because their number was recognized as the main number to call. So they're even getting calls for what I would call customer service problems with people's accounts relative to gambling. And they're getting calls from other things that have nothing to do with problem gambling. So we have to delve more into the numbers. There are three people that work for the Council on Problem Gambling. They manage their hotline themselves, and that may not be the most effective model, in particular when we need the data to make decisions concerning problem gambling. What are the numbers that are are out there. And then checking with Demas, who manages the problem gambling programs, they have not seen an increase at all. And so they're getting increase in numbers in calls. Are they relative to customer service or are they relative to problem gambling? That's a question that we have to get answered. And we need to make sure that the hotline system that CCPG is using is collecting this data so that we can actually analyze it and figure out what it is. So there was also the two tribal nations, the two casinos give more money now than they ever did to to directly to CCPG. But they also give money to programs concerning problem gambling. And talking with Rush Street in the lottery, they also give in-kind contributions, but they give a predominance of their money. The 3.5 million goes directly into the program. So in order to get the correct data to make an actual analysis of what's going on over the weekend, I developed a few questions for both the Department of uh, Mental Health and Addiction Services, and for the Connecticut Council on Problem Gambling so that we could see what the problem is, find out what what we're doing, and recognize what else needs to be done. So I'm not yet there to say that we've had a quadrupling of the problem gambling in the state, but I am there in finding out what the numbers are. Did If they got a quadruple of calls, were there two calls before and now there are eight? That's a question that we should all be asking. Let me just say first that perfect segue there, Brian, because this is a, you know, I think today in politics, you know, folks think that there, there's hard lines and people can't agree. But here here we are where, you know, we just spoke about a bill that the center and I had some disagreements about. And now we're on to a concept that we both very much agree on, on all parts of and work very hard together 
And I think that that's important, you know, just as, I mean, as a colleague in, in leadership on public safety, but also in Southeastern delegation. But I think that Senator hit the nail on the head. And, you know, when they say a quadrupling of calls, and we know that some of that is for IT support because folks are concerned. I think it's important to know, too, that where there's alcohol, there'll be alcoholics. Where there's drugs, there'll be drug addicts. And, and where there's gambling, there'll be problem gambling. And I, you know, I've had problem gambling affect my, my own family directly. So I'm familiar with the concept. But I think that our legislation, our tribal partners do a really good job of you know, mitigating that to the to, to the degree that we can. But other than that, I think that institution of, of online gambling has been off to a, a great start as a revenue generator, not only for the state, but for the local economy. And, you know, like I said, we'll keep an eye on if there is significant increase in problem gambling, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it and we'll work with our tribal partners and the, the Problem Gambling Council to, to do what the best is for Connecticut. Let's turn now to some big announcements, which uh, came out fairly recently. State Senator for Mika has announced that he will not be looking to be re-elected this year and is retiring. And also just recently, Themis Claridis has made an announcement that she intends to try for US Senator. Both of you thoughts on that? Those are big decisions and affect obviously the Republicans here in Connecticut. And, and you know, how does that affect the Republican Party? I think that, you know, Paul's an outstanding senator and, you know, we have 36 Senate seats. And, you know, him retiring puts us, puts that seat at risk, I feel like. And that could be a, a problem for Republicans, not just to lose Paul, who's an outstanding senator, but also just the way that the numbers add up. Because, you know, when you look at the legislature and say, well, you know, the, the, the Democrats control the Senate. So if you have a Senate leader who is adamantly opposed to, to one particular topic, even if all 100, you know, 185 other people you know, are in favor of it, you know, he won't call it in the Senate and it doesn't go. And, and you know, that's that's. When you start to look at numbers from a partisan line, those are the concerns. And so as much as, you know, the center and I could work together, which we do often cross party lines and, and, you know, neither one of us, I don't feel like, you know, digs our heels in on our own side. We work for what's best. And but when you look at partisanship and just the makeup of the legislature, I think that's a concern that Republicans are going to have as, you know, we potentially lose a Senate seat. And I'm sure it's the same in Washington, D.C. I, I have an opportunity to serve with Themis. As, as you know, she retired uh, just before I came in. But um, I had many conversations with her and excited to see her. I think she's a viable candidate. I think she's a, a moderate legislator who you know, has demonstrated through her years that she's about getting a job done, uh, whatever it takes to get that job done. And I think that uh, Connecticut needs that. And it would balance out you know, our Senate delegation in Washington, D.C., which I think you know, balances something that we're all striving for. I've worked with Paul almost my entire time in the Senate, and then we were both first selectmen before that. So we've worked together for a lot of years. I think Paul's a, a wonderful person and I respect him immensely. And I know that this was a hard decision for him. I will miss working with him. Relative to Themis, and it's all been known ever since she retired from the General Assembly that she was going to be running for a seat. I don't think she ever determined which seat that would be. That's come into clarity right now. And, uh, you know, I wish her luck. With regards to the governor, of course, he is also up for, for re-election. Greg, I'm going to turn to you first and play devil's advocate. How well has he done in your eyes? Well, I think that we're starting to see some unpopularity with the governor, with the extension of the executive orders. You know, you're watching uh, him sort of play ping pong with you know Democratic leadership in the legislature right now because nobody wants to hot potato the extensions and the mask mandates. You know, more and more states who have opened up before us are are showing that they didn't have worse numbers than we did on a per capita basis. So I think he's kind of got a little bit uh, of damage control where at one time during the pandemic, he was heralded as a as a leader who was handling it quite well. I think that that tide sort of shifted 
I think a lot of that has to do with COVID fatigue. You know, people are getting frustrated. There's some liability reasons that are a lot of areas uh, within government are hesitant to come back. And I think he needs to get the capital open. I think he, he needs to work with le- uh, the legislative leaders to, to get the capital open and get government back open, much like our private sector is open. It's been open for a long time. It's opened up faster than our government has. And I think that that's going to be a liability for him going forward if he doesn't try to get that sorted out. It's interesting too. you know, go back to police, Brian, to see you know, the state police union say they're not going to endorse a Democratic governor, you know, for a union to say that really speaks volumes. I think he, you know, again, a tide is turning where, you know, folks are starting to see it as, as our police officers are less active, you know, our streets become less safe. And, you know, the, the governor has his signature on the, the police accountability bill, which was a, not the, but a spoke in the wheel that led to a decrease in enforcement in this state and an increase in fatalities and, and other crimes. So I think he's going to have a lot of work to do. And uh, I think Bob Stefanowski is probably going to try to capitalize on that as a you know pro-law enforcement, pro-public safety governor who is pro-business, you know, pro-children and getting kids back in school without masks on and et cetera. So be an interesting race to watch. So I got the governor kudos on how he handled the COVID response. He clearly put best interests of all of Connecticut's residents in full focus. It's well known and been supported by my votes that I I believe the legislature has a clear purpose and it is a co-equal branch of government. And I think that we need to vote on whether or not the governor has emergency powers or not. And we need to vote on any extension of the uh, executive orders that he has put in, in front of us. I'm hoping that we can vote on them individually. Some of them are just technicalities, and I think we need to do that. But I have voted against the governor's having an extension of his emergency powers five times now. And so I'm glad that we have this opportunity to actually discuss the executive orders and would be a no to extend his emergency powers, uh, as I believe the legislature has a responsibility here. Relative to the election, Greg brought up the state police. They also said they would not endorse any Republican. And they said that because Republicans have never supported the quality of life issues for police. They've never supported and voted against, even in the last contract negotiations, they voted against the state police getting any increase in pay. They voted against state police receiving support for any tenants of anything relative to financial. Our men and women in Connecticut, as we struggle filling positions, need to be funded in particular if they work for the state at a level that allows them to have a a quality of life. And so while I recognize what the executive director for the state police has put out as his position. My understanding is the state police have a new election coming up for president, but the executive director has said he is not going to endorse either Ned Lamont or any Republican because they have always voted against everything for state police quality of life. And I think that that's important for everyone to recognize is that they recognize that they don't like the police accountability bill but they dislike completely the fact that not a single Republican has ever supported a contract for the state police, allowing them to get a fair wage for a very dangerous job that they do. State Senator Kathy Austin and State Representative Greg Howard, as always, it's great talking to you both, getting both of your professional insights on this. We wish you both well in your own re-election races this year. 2022 will no doubt be a very interesting year. We will be following it. And thank you again, both of you, for your time.
Have a great day. See you later, Craig. Bye, Kath. The American Red Cross blood supply is at historically low levels this winter, and we're facing a dangerous situation across the country. Without the blood they need, hospitals may be forced to make tough decisions about patient care. Donors are needed now to ensure blood is available for everyone who needs it, when they need it. The good news is, you can help. Make an appointment to give now. Visit redcrossblood.org or call 1-800-RED-CROSS. Patients are counting on you. Winter is coming, so think about preparing your plants and trees for the season. Green Valley Tree LLC can help prepare your trees to withstand heavy snow, ice, and wind with cabling, trimming, and removal. We also do pruning. In fact, we do it all. Call Green Valley Tree LLC today on 860-234-4041 or visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making the headlines in the region recently. A Connecticut healthcare workers union is raising concerns over what it calls a staffing crisis in addiction services that led the state to close treatment admissions at two hospitals for the first time. Emily Scott from the Connecticut News Service reports. Members of SCIU District 1199 New England say the closures in late December at Connecticut Valley Hospital in Middletown and Blue Hills Treatment Center in Hartford disconnected people from medically managed detoxification services, the highest level of addiction care. Thomas Burr with NAMI Connecticut says combined with flat funding for the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, people have been unable to get the help they need. The entire behavioral health system in Connecticut is gridlocked, and too many end up in crisis and wind up in overcrowded emergency rooms, waiting sometimes days for an inpatient bed to open, or worse, end up in a jail or in prison. The union is asking DEMAS to fill 330 already funded positions at the two health facilities. A DEMAS spokesperson says admissions have resumed at the hospitals. The department has hired for nearly 700 positions since 2019 and continues to recruit for vacancies. I'm Emily Scott. Scientists from the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station are helping researchers and the indigenous Mi'kmaq Nation to decontaminate tribal land in the state of Maine of dangerous PFAS chemicals using hemp plants at a former U.S. Air Force base. Dr. Sarah Nason is from the experiment station and one of the project's researchers and explains why they're using the plants in what is called phytoremediation. The plants, as they grow, will either produce chemicals and bacteria in their roots that will help to degrade the chemicals over time, or that the chemicals will get taken up into plants along with all the nutrients and water that the plants take up. And then if you harvest the plants, you're removing the contaminants from the site. Nason says hemp is being used as it grows fast and consumes a lot of water and results so far show the plants are having a positive effect in reducing the amount of PFAS at the test site. Further research is needed to determine if the contaminated hemp plants can still be used safely for other industrial purposes or whether they will have to be destroyed because of PFAS they contain. PFAS or forever chemicals are found in everyday items like non-stick pots and pans and pizza boxes, as well as firefighting foam and have been detected across the entire U.S. and across Connecticut. 
In the Connecticut Examiner this week, about 70 parents, students and community members dressed in rainbow colours filled the auditorium at the Haddam Killingworth Middle School recently in support of LGBTQ students and school staff teaching a curriculum that includes gender identity and sexual orientation. The showing comes in response to a recent petition and parent complaints taking aim at the new state-mandated health curriculum, which includes a lesson about sexual orientation and gender identity in eighth grade. The local debate is part of a broader national struggle regarding appropriate school curricula and school library books on a variety of topics including history, gender, race and sexuality. In the Norwich Bulletin this week, Killingly Town officials are fine-tuning a proposal aimed at eliminating overdue fines at the Killingly Public Library, a step similar institutions across the country have already taken as part of a push to promote equity and access. The town's council fiscal subcommittee earlier this month heard a presentation on the plan by Killingly Public Library Director Claudette Stockwell. In her presentation, Stockwell noted the current fine structure hurts patrons who are struggling financially the most. And in the Chronicle this week, the anticipated opening date for the new Mansfield Elementary School is fast approaching. Mansfield Superintendent of Schools Kelly Lyman presented the public with a breakdown of the new school at a special presentation in the Mansfield Senior Centre. When completed, the structure will be Connecticut's first net-zero school, meaning the building will be able to produce enough energy to meet its energy demands. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at connecticut-east.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East this week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Thank you for listening.